you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to the Gospel of Matthew, the 20th chapter. If you were here last week, you know that we joined Jesus on this road trip. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face to go there. He's determined to go there because Jesus is determined that he is going to die on the cross for people like you and like me. And Jerusalem is the place that that has to happen. And so in these weeks, as we prepare for Easter, it's good for us. And it is transformational for us to share some of the experiences with Jesus as he made his way to that much-loved city. What did he do as he made this last trip? Whom did he encounter? Whom did he engage? What did he teach them? See, these are important moments, these miles together. Because these are the moments and these are the miles that are going to be freshest on the minds of the people who love and follow Jesus. Because in just a few days, they are going to see him crucified on the cross. But not only that, they're going to have experienced his resurrection. So as they look back, what can they see now that they couldn't see then? What can they learn now from these moments that they couldn't understand when they occurred? What are those issues about which they could say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Surely, They would take every moment and every word and every act and every expression and every tone of voice and they would wring it out for all the meaning they could possibly get from it. For more reason to love the one who loved them so much. For more reasons to understand him better. Every moment an opportunity to learn more and more about what kind of follower of Christ they should be. And so it is for you and for me this morning, as we walk along the same road with Jesus. We need to love him more. Agreed? We need to know and understand him more. Agreed? We need to know how to become better followers of Christ. Agreed? So let's hit the road with Jesus and do just that. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 20, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless us now as we come to your word. It is bread that feeds our souls. It's water that uh, nourishes them. And so we ask now that through the power of your spirit, uh, you would grow us and transform us through your word and the truth of it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. If you look back in verse 17, as you heard, Jesus has now predicted his death for the third time. That he will go to Jerusalem, that he will be flogged, mocked, and crucified. Now Matthew immediately follows that prediction of Jesus' death with this scene that includes James and John and their mother, and this request that they make of Jesus that they be given the most prestigious positions in the kingdom of Christ. And so Jesus is focused on the cross, and these guys are focused on a crown. Now let's think about James and John for just a minute. Who who were they? You know, when Jesus called the two of them, along with the ten others, to be official apostles of his, on that occasion he named Simon Peter, which means rock. But these two brothers, James and John, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. What did Jesus see in these two young men that made him give them that name? Perhaps they had loud, commanding voices, thunderous voices. Perhaps they were boisterous and full of energy and zeal and and passion, thundering their way through life. That certainly would be consistent with the passage we looked at last week, wouldn't it? Where these two, James and John, wanted to call down fire from heaven to burn up the village that refused to welcome Jesus. Well, the good news is, That under the power of the Spirit, the fiery zeal of these two brothers would be transformed. And it would be harnessed and used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God. Can't you hear the thunder in John's pen? He's not slow getting out of the gate. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom! But we're not at that point yet. Because James and John, they are still a work in progress. They're still wanting to call down fire from heaven. They're still audacious enough to ask for the highest positions in Christ's kingdom for themselves. And so here's one of those moments for us on this journey to Jerusalem that should give us hope. No matter where we are right now, no matter how much or how little we understand about the truth of Christ, though we are wilder at heart, and though our lives are more unrestrained than we know they should be, the Spirit of God is at work. And the Spirit of God can bring transformation. And He can change us. And he can take those qualities and characteristics that make us us, that sometimes annoy other people, 
But those natural dispositions of, of our heart and, and by the Spirit of God, they can be redeemed. And they can be refined. And by the grace of the Lord, He can elevate them and use them, us, and those characteristics we possess to be effective workers in His kingdom. And that's good news. Let's get back to the story and look for another one of those moments. What must it have been like to raise these two boys, James and John? I'm thinking they might have been a handful. And what must Mama have been like? And did these boys get their thunder from Mama? You know, if we read between the lines here, and I'm not saying we should build our theology by reading between the lines, but if we read between the lines, we can safely speculate that she did not advise the boys this way. Now, boys, you know you can't ask Jesus for the, for the highest positions in his kingdom? What? No, I won't go and ask him for you. No. Mama leads the way. Mama's bold enough to ask the request. Stand back, boys. Let Mama take care of this. Now, my apologies if she was the sweetest woman in the world. I don't know. But here it is. So, so, so what's good about this story? What's good about this request? Well, the good thing is the fiery faith of all three of them, the mother and James and John, because though no thing currently indicates that Jesus is ever going to be successful in establishing a kingdom on earth, and that's what James and John and their mother thought he was going to do, nothing indicates that he'll ever be successful in overthrowing the Roman government and establishing himself as king over Israel, yet they believe he will. And that is faith. Where's Jesus' army? The 12 disciples are the closest thing he has to that. And when Jesus sent them out to do ministry, he said, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. You can't overthrow the Roman government with nothing, no armor, no weapons, no chariots. Did James and John sit around in the evening speculating? You know, you know what I think? I think that first Jesus is going to do this, and then Jesus is going to do this, and then, you know, we're going to do this, and then he's going to establish himself as king over Israel. We don't know what they did, and it really doesn't matter. Because what's important is that they have great faith or they would not make this request of Jesus at all. Faith that Jesus will establish his kingdom, faith that he will be king, and that faith is beautiful. But that faith is out of focus. It's looking in the wrong place. It's looking at the wrong thing. But Jesus doesn't rebuke these two or their mother for the request, as he did when they wanted to call down fire from heaven. You know, in that... Uh, circumstance, he turned to them, and then Scripture says he rebuked them, and some manuscripts say, you do not know, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They were ignorant. In this instance, Jesus simply says, you do not know what you are asking. You are ignorant. And so here's another moment to encourage us on this journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. And that is that Jesus is exceedingly patient. He is supernaturally patient. Patient when we are ignorant. Patient when our faith is out of focus. Peter writes in his second letter, 
chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. The Lord's patience means that more and more people will become more and more aware of their desperate life situation and what a wreck their life is because of sin. And more and more people will look to Christ to rescue them, to save them, to give salvation to them from that way of life through faith in Christ. But the salvation that Peter speaks of in that verse is not limited to just coming to faith in Christ. The Lord's patience means more and more time for those who are saved to grow in that salvation. That you and I, who know and love the Lord, every day would die more and more to self and live more and more to Christ. Lang writes in his commentary, every postponement of the day of judgment is also an extension of grace for believers as far as they may make further progress in holiness. Is that how you view every day that the Lord postpones in his return? Or in calling you home, it's another day to grow your progress toward holiness. According to the church father, an early Christian author, Tertullian, he said that the early Christians were in the habit of praying for the postponement of the end of time so that they had more time to become sanctified. And he should know, he lived among them from 160 to 225 AD. The Lord is patient, even with those who have been with him so long and been so close to him. You don't know what you are asking, he says to James and John. You are ignorant, but the Lord is patient. In a few more days, we'll hear very similar words to these. Except this time they're going to take the form of a prayer that Jesus utters to his Father. Father, forgive them, for they are ignorant. They do not know what they are doing. The patience of the Lord has not been exhausted even with you and me, when we've walked with him a long time and we still don't get it, the Lord is patient for all those blind spots that all of us have in our lives, for all those truths that we've heard, but truth that hasn't made its way into our hearts or into our thoughts or into our actions. The Lord is patient. And so Jesus probes around here in the faith for just a little bit in James and John. And his first response to them comes in the form of a question. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Jesus knows that he's taught the disciples, these two, about faith. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus wants his followers, his disciples to have faith. He wants them to have great faith. But what do they think faith is? And what do they believe that faith is for? What mountain will they need to move? What is the seemingly impossible thing that they should have faith that Christ can move and make possible. And so here, Jesus needs to focus the faith of James and John. And here's another moment 
on this journey to Jerusalem for you and for me, this refocusing of faith. Faith, its object, what it longs for, its motivation, the reason faith asks. It's easy to turn inward toward self and what we want and what we need instead of turning upward to Christ or outward to the world that needs the gospel. And so he asks the question, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? In his book, The Questions of Jesus, John Deere, D-E-A-R, not the tractor guy, John Deere writes, Jesus' questions are to reposition you, to make you own your own unconscious biases, to break you out of your dualistic mind, to challenge your image of God or the world, to present new creative possibilities. Jesus asks questions, good questions, unnerving questions, realigning questions, transforming questions. He leads us into transitional and therefore transformative space. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? That should have been an unnerving question for James and John. It should have been a realigning question for them. The phrase drinking the cup is an Old Testament idiom, and it just meant uh, sharing completely and fully in the experience or the situation of another person. And so it's a neutral phrase. Sometimes the cup is pleasant. Psalm 16, 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. That's a good cup, isn't it? Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup does what? Overflows. Psalm 116, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That is a good cup. But the cup can also be bitter. Isaiah 51, awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Can you drink the cup? Jesus asks. James and John rush to an answer. We can, say the sons of thunder. We can. Why are they so certain? How did they know they could drink the cup? What was the cup? What did it contain? Why didn't they ask Jesus before they answered, well, Jesus, we're not sure if we can drink the cup. To which cup are you referring? I assume that they thought they knew what Jesus meant, what the cup was, and it wasn't an unpleasant one from their perspective. It was one of great gain and great glory. Seats at the right and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. So Jesus' question did not knock them off balance. Instead, their faith fixated them on what they wanted, these seats of honor. And they were ready to say whatever they needed to say to get the thing they wanted. If they had thought about the cup, if they had suspected what it truly was, it's highly improbable that they would have ever answered yes or that they would have answered so quickly. Jesus himself, praying in the garden, of Gethsemane, ask, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Surely, 
James and John would not have reached out for the cup if they knew what was in it. But they didn't want to know, and so they didn't ask. The cup was incidental to the crown. Sure, sure, Lord, whatever, yeah, 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 we'll drink the cup. We want the crown. Martin Luther said this, and if you're looking for a quote of the day, this is a great quote of the day. You can jot it down on your bulletin. Martin Luther says, The flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. The flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. When Jesus predicted his death the second time, he said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. That's literally what he said. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But the words did not sink in. Scripture says. The disciples did not understand what he meant, and Scripture says that they were afraid to ask him about it. Because you know what? Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? If they don't ask a question, then Jesus can't give an answer that they don't want to hear. Jesus can't say cross to them when they want a crown. What are the truths that don't sink into our ears as contemporary Christians. Truth that is in God's word for us to read, for us to hear, but we're afraid to ask about that truth or talk about that truth. Jesus says in Matthew 10, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need faith for. To live a life like this. To love Christ more than I love those people that I truly love so much. This is the mountain that seems impossible to move. But by faith, the Lord can move it. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need faith for, to live a life like this, to deny our high-maintenance selves. And all of us have a high-maintenance, demanding self. Willingness to pick up the cross, willingness to lose our lives, willingness, willing to be unashamed of the Savior. This is the mound that seems impossible to move, but the Lord by faith can move it. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need faith for. To live a life like this, to be able to endure the hate of the world without breaking under peer pressure, 
without compromising to gain the acceptance that we all crave so much. This is the mountain that seems impossible to move, but by faith the Lord can move it. Ephesians 4, 21. Paul writes, When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need faith for. To live like this. To stop living like I used to live, like I enjoyed living. And to devote myself to a life of righteousness and holiness. To change my way of thinking. To put on the new self. That's the mountain that seems impossible. I can't do it. But by faith the Lord can. 1 Timothy 6. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need faith for, to live like this, to fight the good fight, to never give in, to endure. That's the mountain that seems impossible. Lord, I can't do it, but by faith the Lord can. 2 Timothy 2.3 Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now our faith comes into focus. This is what we need focus, faith for, to to live like this, to suffer. Me, suffer, that's the mountain that seems impossible. But by faith, we can do it. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, last chapter of the last thing that Paul writes. For I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now our faith comes into focus, and this is what we need faith for, to live like this. For you and for me, not to seek the crown before we have carried the cross. This is the mountain that seems impossible. But by faith, the Lord can do it. One more. 1 Peter chapter 1. For a little while, you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Now our faith comes into focus, and this is what we need faith for. To live like this. The trials that purify our faith, which is more precious than gold. That's the mountain that seems impossible. I can't do it, but by faith the Lord can. Do these truths and these calls from Scripture sink in to our ears? Church growth experts tell us not to talk about the cup and not to talk about the cross. We're not supposed to talk about those things. Because when people come together to worship, they want a positive message. You will never draw people to your church. You will never fill the pews. You will never pay the bills with a message of a cup or a cross. And some of you may be wishing you hadn't brought a friend to visit church today. 
And you may have to explain to me a little later. I don't know what's wrong with Craig. He's usually so positive. But you know, what are we wanting to draw people to? We want to draw people to Christ, don't we? But Jesus asks his followers, can you drink the cup? We're not like the used car salesman of 40 years ago, pre-Carfax when you could know the truth, you know, pre-1975 federal lemon laws. You know, back then you could shine the car up, you could make them look good, you could make them look appealing, you could make them look irresistible, you could get the customer to sign on the dotted line and they could drive off the lot in the car. But in not too many miles, the new owner of that car would discover the truth about that car. It wasn't at all what it looked like, and it wasn't at all what it was sold to be. What are we selling? We can't talk about the crown. We can't talk about the glories of heaven. We can't talk about eternal life with Christ without the cross and the faith that Jesus gives it to pick it up and to carry it. The cross is supposed to reposition us. James and John inadvertently answer the question correctly. Yes, we can drink the cup. And they do drink the cup, even though they can't imagine drinking it when Jesus asks them. James doesn't know in this moment, he doesn't anticipate that he's going to be the very first person to die for his faith in Christ. Herod's going to execute him, perhaps because he was so thunderous and zealous in his promotion, in his proclamation of the good news of the gospel. John doesn't know yet that he's going to be left all alone, a very old man, to watch all the others, all the other apostles, to go on to be with the Lord, to go on to glory. He's going to be left alone, an old man banished to the island of Patmos. But the Lord knows all that. And he leaves it to James and John to discover on their own because Jesus knows that their faith will take a whole new dimension when that faith calls them to do the impossible to live well for the glory of Christ, to die well, to pray, to remove any obstacles that threaten to block the spread of the gospel. Jesus knows that when the time comes for them to drink the last cup, he's going to be with them, empowered by the spirit that Jesus is going to give to these two. They will be able to do what they can't imagine doing now. They will pick up the cup and they will drink it down. And after they do it, they will receive their Christ-appointed place in the kingdom of God only, guess what? It's better than what they asked for. A place of higher honor and dignity. They asked for positions at the right and the left hand. What does Jesus say in Revelation 3.21? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. And so I'm glad for this stop on the way to Jerusalem. It exposes some truth about me, and I hope it exposes some truth to you about yourself. I, we, want the crown, but not the cross. And very often our faith is turned inward toward what we want instead of upward to Christ. And outward to the world that he has called us to reach with the good news of the gospel. 
And when I dream big dreams and ask for big things that require big faith, those dreams should be for the sake of the gospel. They should be dreams about the transformed person that I can be and that you can be. The sanctified lives that we can live that sometimes seems like an impossible dream. So this trip along the way to Jerusalem reminds me to check my motivation. Is what I want for Christ and His glory? Or is it for me and my glory and my comfort? Stop along the way makes me love Jesus more. He will not skip to the crown. The, 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 the cross comes first. And he gladly bears it. Before he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, before he receives the name that's above every name, first he willingly drinks the cup. The crown, a crown, awaits every person right here, all of us, all of us here who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, a crown awaits us. And it's going to be a great day, a glorious day when we receive it. But we can't skip to it. You and I can't now escape to the future. You and I must have a a, a future hope, but a present faith focus. We know what will be. It's the crown. Yay! But we don't know how, and we don't know when. But with a rightly focused faith, you and I can, and we must, drink the cup. Carry the cross of love. Love that was so amazing. Love that was so divine that it demands our soul, our life, and our all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for the truth of your word. Father, we pray for your forgiveness when we have cheapened your grace or the message of the gospel by not telling the whole story. Lord, the good news is that there is salvation through faith and through faith alone. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. It's ours to receive by faith, freely given to us by you. But Lord, then we live out this life of faith on this road that you place us on when you call us to yourself and when you save us. And by your own words, Lord, you call those who follow you to deny themselves. You call us to take up our cross and follow you. You call us to love you more than we love others. You tell us, Lord, there's going to be pain and suffering in our lives, but that's a good thing because that's going to make us more holy and more like you. And that's the complete story, Lord. You tell us the world is going to hate us, and yet we seek so hard for the, for the world to love us, but it's not the way it is. And so I pray now that by faith, each of us will live the life that you have called us to live, that we will do what you command us to do, to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves, and to follow you. Lord, we can do it, but we can only do it by faith. And so it causes us to fix our eyes on you. Not for what we want, not for what we can gain, Lord, for what you can give us, how you can make us more and more like Christ, and how you can do great things in us and through us to spread your kingdom and the good news of the gospel here on earth. To that, Lord, we must commit ourselves 
to count all things as lost for the sake of knowing you, for preaching the good news of the gospel. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.